everybody, Lance Russell and Dave Brown right along ringside. By golly, we're about ready to go with more big action. Thank you very much and welcome to Georgia Championship Wrestling. I'm Gordon Sully, your host, and we have quite an hour in store for us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Championship Wrestling at ringside. This is Vince McMahon along with wrestling's only living legend, Bruno Sammartino. Welcome to this week's edition of Mid-South Wrestling Television. I'm your host, Boyd Pierce, another outstanding card. Hey, guys, and welcome back to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. That's right, each and every week, guaranteed 100% territory talk here on the show. And of course, I am your host, Ray Russell. Very excited this week because, guys, we're jumping into a new project. It's already full steam ahead with Georgia 1981, heading into the mid-year of 81 with Jamie Ward. Of course, everybody knows we're also covering Bill Watts' UWF in 1986 with Roman Gomez, just about midway through the year of 86 in the UWF as well. But Jamie and Roman, they can be busy boys, especially this time of year. Their shoot jobs are a calling, if you know what I mean. So I thought this would be a great time to bring in a third project here for the show, and that's the Memphis Wrestling Territory. Yes, indeed, guys, heading back to the CWA in 1985. And this week's special guest, Steve Crawford. Now, you may have heard Steve in the past on John McAdams' Stick to Wrestling podcast, but when I sent out feelers on social media looking for people that might be interested in talking the Memphis territory, Steve was the first person to raise his hand. And I got to tell you, based on his background, his knowledge of the Memphis territory, I couldn't have gotten a better offer. Not just for you guys, the listeners, but for me, myself. I hope to learn a couple of new things here today on the show. Yes, indeed. So Steve going to be here in just a moment as we begin to set the stage for 1985 in the Memphis Territory by talking about all sorts of things that were going on over the last several months, not just in the ring, but behind the scenes. We're going to touch on Pro Wrestling USA. What was that, you might ask? Stay tuned and find out. We'll also be talking Ole Anderson and his championship wrestling from Georgia promotion joining forces with the Memphis Territory, when it started, when it ended, why it ended so abruptly. I'm sure many names, many topics going to come up here today on the show, maybe even Angelo Poffo's ICW. So you're not going to want to miss this episode. Talking Jerry the King Lawler, Macho Man Randy Savage, that little pipsqueak Jimmy Hart, even here at the beginning of the year, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, and I'm sure many of you have heard of the name Plowboy Frazier, but have you ever heard of Playboy Frazier? Of course, the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant, the Dirty White Boys, the Nightmares, the Fabulous Ones. The list goes on and on. But before we kick it all off, just a friendly reminder, guys, that you can listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast and our sister shows, like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently covering the 1988 and the WWF Project. Just finished up the January 2nd edition of Saturday Night's Main Event not too long ago. Of course, the first ever Royal Rumble upon us here in 1988 and WrestleMania 4 right around the corner. You can also listen to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. It's Raw versus Nitro as I break down the weekly episodic story known as the Monday Night War, one week at a time. And of course, let us not forget the Wrestling Stoop podcast with the legend himself, Bob Root. Bob continues to share personal memories, stories, not just about himself, but all the other wrestlers, promoters, the referees, everyone he ever came in contact with. It seems like Bob has a story for. And if you haven't listened to the show yet, go back and do yourself a favor. The stories about Terry Funk, Don Fargo, Ron Wright, Hulk Hogan, guys. 
Like I said, Bob has a story for everyone, so check it out, The Wrestling Stoop. And you can listen to all of those shows and more as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And be sure to follow me on social media for all the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And I'm also constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And you can find me on social media, guys. Follow me on X, formerly the Twitter. You can find me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube, guys. Talk about YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Subscribe today because my YouTube actually plays into the regional wrestling show quite a bit. You see, whenever I cover the UWF shows with Roman, you can actually head over to my YouTube and watch the shows we're covering right there. The main TV broadcast, as well as the B show, Power Pro. And I've been upping those in chronological order as we go along here. I've also began adding Memphis from 85 over on YouTube as well, once again in chronological order, so you guys can follow along with us. Now, I'm not just talking the TV studio show, but the secondary show that aired out of Jackson, Tennessee, covering many Mid-South Coliseum matches. Yes, indeed, the Coliseum matches airing on TV. And just for the fun of it, I'm even adding the Jerry Lawler Show. Yes, the Sunday morning talk show hosted by the King. You can find all of those there on YouTube. So subscribe today, youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. And of course, guys, now would be a tremendous time to become a WrestleCopia patron. And I'm talking to you guys about that $5 all-access tier. And you can find me there at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Yes, indeed. The $5 all-access tier gets you all sorts of gifts for just 5 bucks, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes, pages and pages of show notes for every episode of The Grenade Show, Monday Warfare, and The Regional Wrestling Podcast. You also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Also, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, random bonus video drops, and of course, the Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription. Cancel any time. Help show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you like the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you have a few bucks to spare, looking to support that next up-and-coming podcast brand, I could really use some new hardware as we continue to build the brand here, guys. So please consider making your next Patreon subscription WrestleCopia. As we try to bring you guys the most quality product, providing information, as well as entertainment. So if you can, help me pay some of these bills to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network up and running for the months and the years to come. All right, guys, and away we go. Oh, I've been waiting to do this for a very long time. Cue up that familiar music as we head back to 1985 and the CWA, the Memphis Wrestling Territory.
again, everybody. Lance Russell, sorry, Ray Russell here. No relation, though I wish it were. Yes, indeed, Ray Russell here, ready to bring you that 1985 Memphis wrestling goodness. And this week, we're ready to set the stage. So who better to bring on as a co-host for such a thing than the Memphis wrestling superfan slash historian, not sure what he wants to be called. We'll ask him in just a second. I want to welcome Mr. Steve Crawford to the show. Steve, his first time here on Regional Wrestling, hopefully not his last. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, it's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and this should be a lot of fun looking at 1984-1985 uh, Memphis Wrestling. Oh my God, I'm, I'm happy to have I'm you, happy brother. Have and you. Um, So let's get this out of the way right off the bat. I didn't know how to introduce you. Would you consider yourself a super fan, a historian, or a hybrid of both? Yeah, I think I'm kind of a hybrid. I think I'm kind of a nerd in the middle. Uh, I, I, you know, just devour, you know, wrestling history and especially Memphis wrestling history. I grew up watching Memphis wrestling. I did, uh, write a book about a decade ago called legends of Memphis wrestling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of in between a super fan and a historian, I would say. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I have that book. So, uh, go check that out guys. If it is it still in print, can, can they still pick that up? It is not. If somebody, you know, is dying to have it. I have a few copies lying around the house and they can contact me and, and we can work out a deal, but uh, no, it's, it's no longer available. Okay. And he'll autograph that guys for an extra 50 bucks. So just, you know, hey, 40, <laughs> I'm in Christmas spirit. Oh, there you go. Knock a couple bucks off. I love it. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, Steve, man, uh, for the last three and a half years, I set up my brand and some of the original ideas I had, I was going to do a Memphis only podcast. And it never really came to fruition because I started doing this one and that one. And finally, I just said, screw it. And I, I created a territory podcast, Regional Wrestling. And I said, you know what? I'll just kind of slide Memphis into here. So that's what we're doing right now. And maybe someday it'll become its own entity, its own podcast, and we can kind of morph it over to that. But for the moment, we are part of Regional Wrestling now. And it's Memphis 1985, guys. But in order to get to 85, we've got to set the stage and go back in time a little bit. And Steve, I don't know if you've listened to my setting the stages in the past. I've done it for Georgia. I've done it for Mid-South. I've even done it for the WWF, the NWA. But this one's going to be a little different because those, they had long backstories. I had to cover all of the big feuds going on coming into the new year. But this is kind of a, a reset button being hit here for 85. Well, there is a reset, but uh, there was just so much chaos in the wrestling world in 1984 right. with Vince and the national expansion and kind of the, the, the waves that that created throughout the wrestling industry. So, you know, you could you could look at Memphis, you know, just as its own entity. And, and you're right. It is a major reset in 1985. But if you look at what's happening globally in the wrestling world, there's a lot of things that are impacting Memphis wrestling. Absolutely. And we're going to get into all of that today, guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it's funny you called it, it uh, Memphis its own entity because, you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. Memphis wrestling truly its own entity. And that's basically what we're going to get to today. And the first uh, topic on the docket really is I labeled it Enigma and Anomaly, which is what I refer to Memphis wrestling as because in my personal opinion, in my observation anyway, the Memphis territory very much loved by the wrestling community. It's quite the enigma, uh, and that term is thrown around a lot in, in wrestling, Steve, but Memphis truly was an enigma of sorts, and I feel like it's not talked about enough by, by enough podcasters out here in the world, so I'm glad to get this project off the ground. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a different style of wrestling. Uh, it was a small man's territory, which is you know, kind of unusual in the world of wrestling. Mm -hmm. A lot of gimmicks, a lot of comedy, 
the music videos, they just did things differently than other promotions did. So it's, it's, it definitely had its own style and its own brand. Yeah. Very much an anomaly in that fact. I, I don't know that it would have worked in anywhere, anywhere else in the United States outside of that Memphis. I just worked there for whatever reason, maybe because, you know, they, they saw it from the, the ground up. I mean, every territory, it had its own style per se. St. Louis was all about the wrestling, Florida, the big hot angles, but right back to that ground-based wrestling of, Dory Funk, Jack Briscoe, things like that. Of course, they'll eventually get dusty and things down the road. Uh, Georgia, more of a spotlight show, right? Because it was a cable base. A little bit of everybody came in and out of there. Mid-South, knocked down, uh, rough them up. Bloody style. I mean, just true fighting style. But Memphis, it was a little bit of everything, guys. Because, uh, again, I go yeah. back to that word enigma. Because you look at all of the different things that was going on there. Because you had Jerry Lawler versus pretty much everybody. Uh, the Fabulous Ones, the Moon Dogs, lots of bloody brawls throughout the decades. You can go back to Jackie Fargo, Ron Wright, whomever you want to talk about that was that came through the Tennessee territories. Uh, but they also were known for interesting gimmicks, like you said, gimmick matches. The scaffold match started there. Tarn feather matches. Concession stand madness. Uh, if Jerry Lawler was booking, Steve, we'd even get Dr. Frankenstein's monster. So you never knew. Oh, yeah. Lawler loved the monsters. He, he had a monster mask collection and he, he loved mask guys. And, but when you mentioned Jackie Fargo, I think a lot of that Memphis style wrestling goes back to him, you know, a smaller baby face, somebody who would bleed a lot, a brawling type of match. You know, he, he could make the crowd laugh. He could make the crowd sympathetic. He could make the big fiery comeback. I think that his style influenced Memphis a lot and, and people forget in the early 70s, Jerry Jarrett was over huge as an mm -hmm. undersized baby face. Right. Uh, he drew big money in the early 70s as a wrestler. And so having kind of the undersized, sympathetic baby face was, was something that he, he looked for because he had had so much success doing that. Yeah, you talked about all of the things that Jackie Fargo was. You left one out, and that was believable. And I think that's what sold the, those fights. Jackie Fargo, uh, just, you know, he was a fighter, man. He just, even in the later years when they would go back and play the old tapes of Jackie, just watching him throw right hands. I mean, that's all he had to do. And you were, in, you were just sucked in. Oh, and, and he could sell. There's a, there's a match with, uh, I think it's the hair match with Don Green that's, that's out there on video. And he is just selling Don Green's punches like he's an electric chair. I mean, he, he he just looks like he is being brutalized in that ring. Lance Russell once said, nobody could hold a crowd in the palm of their hand like Jackie Fargo could. He oh, just man. could read a crowd and automatically knew which direction to go for where, where he was placed on the card, what the angle was, what they were trying to get out of the match. He, he was just a master at that. Well, Lance saw them all, so he would know. So I certainly trust Lance Russell's right. opinion on things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like I said, I didn't grow up in the Memphis Territory, and I didn't even grow up when Jackie Fargo was king. So all I knew of Jackie Fargo was what you read in a magazine or the few little clips that they would show every once in a while on Memphis TV if Jackie was coming back into town for, you know, coming out of retirement to do some kind of gig. And But again, I go back to those just those quick little clips that they would show of Jackie firing up, making the big comeback, throwing those punches. You know, I would go in there and grab my wrestlers, and they would become Jackie Fargo and Jerry Lawler, whoever, instead of Hulk Hogan and, and the Macho Man, you know, and I would start throwing those punches instead of doing leg drops and elbows and all that stuff. I was just throwing punches with my toys because I, I, I was sold. I bought into it. So, yeah, I, I love that you said all of those things about Jackie Fargo, because I do believe he played a major part in what Memphis became. And when you when you talk about it being an enigma, an anomaly, 
you know, once a year, Jackie's real life brother, Sonny Fargo, would come <laughs> into the territory. He was he was a referee in the Carolinas, right? And he would this roughhouse Fargo with the angle that he was being basically released out of a mental institution. Got a day off. And, and you, <laughs> you got this small guy, absolutely no build whatsoever, and he just destroys the hills. He's, he, he starts hitting his partners. He starts hitting the referee. He jumps out and sits down in a fan's lap in the front row and starts drinking their Coke and eating their popcorn. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd on the face of it, and it drew huge money for years and years and years. And what's so funny is, guys, you can actually go to the Peacock right now, click on the Mid-Atlantic footage, the early-on Mid-Atlantic footage from whatever it is, 81, 82. You'll see Sonny Fargo there as a referee in the bell-bottoms. He does not come off as that character at all, so kudos to him for being able to separate being a referee and going over here right. and getting to make a few extra bucks as this crazy character. It has to be fun because not he's not let out of a, a nut house, so to speak, but he's let out of his referee position once a year to, to kind of go and let loose. And it's always so fun. Yeah, it was like a, an uncaged animal routine. And, and people just hate that. I mean, people just love seeing Rough House Fargo. So I don't know if you've ever heard this said, and I kind of came to this conclusion myself a couple decades ago. And, and I've seen other people kind of say it since then. So maybe you, it's not something I came up with. It's just something I noticed that everybody else noticed too. But I, I always felt a week in Memphis was like a month, any other promotion, like say Florida story purpose wise, because they ran their major arena every Monday night. And where you may see someone come to another territory and stay six months to a year. Memphis, it was free flowing, man. You, you might see a guy this week that you've never heard of. And then he disappears. You never hear from him again anywhere. So Memphis was very different. Yeah, it was. I always, uh, in my mind, I always said mix Memphis was a weird mixture of like superstars, journeymen, and, and guys off the street. <laughs> you know, sure. You know, one week they're calling Nick Bockwinkle in. There and you go. The next week Lawler's putting a gimmick on some guy you never heard of and, and, and working a main event with him. Yeah, so I, you just never knew what was going to happen. I don't know how true it was, but I've heard stories when they needed <laughs> job guys sometimes at the studio. Every once in a great while, they might pull somebody that they rec recognize as like a, I don't want to say a fan, but somebody off the street sort of, so to speak, like somebody that wasn't completely trained. And I kind of buy that when it comes to Memphis TV. Well, yeah, there's a few stories about that. Mad Dog Boyd, who was uh, yeah. cast one of the Bruce brothers. He was a guy that maybe worked some indie shots and just hung out in the parking lot, hoping to get a chance. And one day, you know, they, Oh, we need a Bruce brother. We got this jacket. Will it fit Mad Dog Boyd? Let's just bring him in here. So, yeah, I mean, those sort of things definitely happened in Memphis. Yeah, that, that explains a lot. Poor Troy Graham goes down with that broken leg, and Mad Dog Boyd is born. So I blame Troy yeah, for that. He and Copa <laughs> recently started, told a story about the first time he worked Memphis TV. He said Butch Malone called him on the phone while the show was on the air wow. and said, well, you need down here at the station. And, and you know, he drives to the television station, and five minutes later, he's he's working a match. <laughs> Right. That's great. That's insane. And we talk about all these different styles and you brought up Nick Bockwinkle. And that was an excellent point because that gets lost in the shuffle here in Memphis. When people think Memphis, we're not really thinking classic wrestling matches, but they would bring in a Nick Bockwinkle or a Billy Robinson every once in a while. And it was it was definitely a different thing. You know, I know what they were going for with Billy Robinson trying to get that world title over. But Nick Bockwinkle, Jerry Lawler proved to me at that point that he knew how to work every style because he held his own in there with, you know, with the top, top of the line guys, the world champions too. Uh, Bachwinkle and, and Lawler had such tremendous chemistry. I mean, they were just masters. Bachwinkle, I think, is such an undervalued world champion. Oh, yeah. 
it, you know, he had that smugness, that arrogance. I'm better than you are. He had the vulnerability in the ring. He could work with any type of opponent. But, you know, he let Lawler call those matches. And, and you know, Bachwick would say Lawler can work a match with anybody. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that Nick let uh, Lawler call those matches, but he was in his home. He was, you know, he was in his backyard. And I think Nick was professional enough to realize that he probably knows better than I do what these people want to see. So that, that's kind of smart of Nicky to do that. Yeah, I think I think there was a lot of professional respect between the two of those guys. You know, it, it was one of those things that you always felt like Lawler was going to beat Bachwinkle. He never did, <laughs> not for the title. <laughs> no, yeah. But, but that, but Bachwinkle sold in such a way that he's like, well, he can't escape this time. You know, it, he was so good at that. And I can already tell by this free-flowing conversation we've had for the first 10, 15 minutes that we could get in a lot of trouble here if we don't stay on topic because I can already tell, man, we could talk for hours. So I can't wait to have you back on the program just to talk about anything Memphis. Um, But for now, I guess we're going to stay on topic, (laughs) guys. Um, So one of the things you mentioned at the top of the program was all of these things that were going on. Uh, in 1984. So 84 was an interesting period in general for the wrestling business because Vince McMahon, he was going hardcore national expansion by this point. He had the USA and TBS network here by the end of 84, even on MTV, expanding the areas he was running shows in, continuing to acquire top level talent. You know, Bobby Heenan recently, the Junkyard Dog back in August, the Rock and Wrestling Connection, now a thing moving into 1985. We've got rock stars like Cindy Lauper, TV stars like Mr. T. So how does one compete if you're a regional territory? Well, a few territories came up with an idea, Steve, and that idea being Pro Wrestling USA. Why don't you tell the people about Pro Wrestling USA? Well, Pro Wrestling USA was was kind of a short-lived conglomeration of promotions trying to work together. The, The folklore is that Vince McMahon actually called in when they were having their first meeting and laughed at them and said, you guys won't be able to work together. You won't even be able to agree on what to have for lunch. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they did have some television tapings. One of, one of the you know, weird things that Jarrett did that, that year that, that didn't make a lot of sense was I think the first television taping was in September in Memphis. Yes, September. And he took a lot of, a lot of guys that were, you know, he was trying to make money with, like Eddie Gilbert and Dutch Mantel and the Dirty White Boys, and he had them basically working as jobbers in this Pro Wrestling USA, and they had a lot of kind of the old NWA stars. They had Harley Race. They had Terry and Dory Funk. Uh, They had a lot of AWA talent in the mix, and so the idea is we're going to put on these super cards, and we're going to be able to take this on the road, and we'll be able to compete with Vince, and you know, every promoter has his own agenda. He's got his own territory to take care of, his own stars to take care of, so that that idea really didn't last very long. Yeah, in my notes here, this is how I summarize Pro Wrestling USA in a nutshell. I said, I think they got this thing off the ground, like you said, around September of 84. Uh, a panic move or knee-jerk reaction to JCP, the AWA, Memphis Wrestling, and Georgia all to join forces. I called it like Voltron. They all joined forces in an attempt to create an ultimate roster to go up against the powerful WWF. But the problem was... All we got was a bunch of squash matches. It was great to see. If you wanted to see a, a whole bunch of different territories come together for squash matches, you got that a lot on the, on the TV program. So you got to see a lot of that. But again, it seemed like Jarrett was the only one that stepped forward and said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll let some of my guys put some of these other guys over because you didn't see the other territories agreeing to that. So Vince might have been right a little bit there. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you certainly didn't. And I know that, you know, at some point, maybe in early 84, I think they had a big card, throw you a card in the Meadowlands. And and Jarrett later said, you know, I don't know where that money went, but I know that I didn't get a dime from that show. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was built for failure. I mean, like you said, it was it was a panic, knee jerk reaction. But, you know, it was like, you know, you're desperate. So trying nothing is, you know, so you got to try something. Yeah, well, Vince is, you know, coming into those territories now. He's taken over the Tunney. You know, the Tunneys join him in Toronto. They're they're over in St. Louis by this point. They got local TV in St. Louis doing some things there. So even all the way off to the West Coast, they took over, you know, where Shire had been and things. So Vince was certainly expanding, and these guys were, like, you know, freaking out, I you guess. Know, and they're like, hey, if we can band together, maybe we can, you know, salvage this thing. And it just doesn't work that way. And, of course, as you know, Steve, a few months later, Vince sells the TBS time slot to Crockett and Crockett not looking to work with people so much anymore. Right, exactly. And, and Vince had also, he'd gone to Memphis, he'd gone to Louisville, he'd gone to Minneapolis, he'd gone into Crockett territory. So, so the gloves were completely off in terms of expansion. So I can, I can see where the guy said, hey, we need to work together. But, you know, you would have to have one person in charge and nobody was going to allow that to happen. Now, I don't know if you heard this story. I, I was doing some digging and I can't verify where the actual story came from that maybe there was an agreement between them to swap a world champion for a couple of days or something like that. Maybe change the time to get some, somebody over in another territory. And that's another reason why they, they all agreed to kind of work together. Like, okay, well, this is why I'll work with you. If you can do this for me. Had you ever heard that? I have not, but you know, Jarrett was always angling to get a world title on Lawler. Right. You know, so I can certainly see him having that point of view, uh, but I, I had not heard that specifically. Okay. That's funny you said that about Lawler, because I'll get into that again, because we're going to move on. So we talked a little bit about Pro Wrestling USA. Steve, have you got anything else you want to discuss in regards to Pro Wrestling USA, what it was, any memories you have of it specifically, why you thought it was good or bad at the time? Uh, please you know, let us hear it now. Otherwise, we're going to move on. We got a, you know another little joint thing going on here between Oli and Jarrett we're going to talk about in just a minute. Well, it was it was kind of ephemeral. It was kind of an idea that came and you saw it and then it left. You know, it was something yeah. just in the room and and it didn't stick. So yeah, I, not, I, not a, you know definite opinions on that. Yeah, I came, I saw, I left, and that's pretty much that. That does explain Pro Wrestling USA. That also explains the next topic we have at hand here. The, by the beginning of November, Memphis Wrestling began a direct relationship, specifically the Georgia territory and Ole Anderson. Even bringing Gordon Soley in as Lance Russell's new co-host, forcing longtime co-host Dave Brown to be placed in as a ring announcer role. Brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was announced on television. We're, we're going to merge. We're going to have this merger between Georgia and actually JCP was involved in the quote merger. And, and really what it was was a talent swap between Memphis and Georgia. Mm hmm. You know, it, it freshened up the TV a little bit. You got to see, you know, Lawler and Tommy Rich and Jimmy Hart on the Georgia show. And you got to see Ronnie Garvin and the Long Riders and, and different guys on the Memphis show. But, you know, did it mean anything in terms of the box office at, you know, these different promotions? I don't really think so. Uh, Gordon and, and Lance Russell they were like chili and mayonnaise. They did not mix at all. <laughs> you know? I've never tried that. So I can't say that, yeah. but it doesn't sound very tasty. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Gordon just wanted to hijack the entire show. So it didn't work. <laughs> Imagine <from> that. that. <laughs> uh -uh. You know, uh, I, I will say Jimmy Hart became the highlight of, of Oli's show. 
there's still a line from Jim Cornette. He stole the show every week, but it was petty theft. Yeah. <laughs> because that, that was some really hard television to watch, even as a hardcore wrestling fan. That studio audience looked like they were like on a prison release program. <laughs> we're worried about going back to jail instead of enjoying wrestling matches. Because <laughs> when you compare the reactions to what you saw in the classic Georgia days, right. completely muted response to everything that happened. Well, you know, once Vince took over TBS, you know, a lot of guys said, you know, they hit the bricks, they, they hit the road, they, they left Georgia. Uh, Ole was left making some calls, had to uh, bring the Oats boys back in. And, you know, Ronnie Garvin was there. And I'm a, I'm a Ron Garvin fan. But like you said, overall, it was just a very different product. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of uh, a variation of ICW in some ways because you had Ronnie Garvin, you had Rip Rogers. And then you'd had guys who'd worked in ICW like Thunderbolt Patterson, Ox mm-hmm. Baker. Uh, who's the other guy I was thinking of? Bob Roop, who was yep. one of the early ICW guys. So it, it just, I mean, they had good talent there. It still just looks so minor league. That's a good call. I never looked at the roster like that. Yeah, that was a total ICW roster to a degree. Of course, Macho Man up here in Memphis, but most of the other, you know, the other talent and things, yeah. I never really noticed it, uh, looked at it like that, but you're right. And Ronnie Garvin on, on top there. I think he was the national champion during this period. I think he was coming in defending some kind of belt here in Memphis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he came in and did a match with Phil Hickerson for, for the title. So, you know, it was nice to see Ronnie Garvin. I was a big fan of his. It was nice to see him on Memphis TV. You know, it, it, it did freshen up the Memphis TV product. I just don't know that you know, that, that any of those feuds translated to money in either of those territories. Right. Now, you talked a little bit ago about Jarrett always wanting to try to get the, a world title on Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler wanting to get a world title on Jerry Lawler. Uh, supposedly, the original agreement here between Ole and Jarrett uh, for Lawler to end up with a brief run, maybe a kind of like a Tommy Rich run with the NWA title. Of course, this is all short-lived. They only last a couple months working together. Working agreement's going to end by the end of 84. Gordon Soley going Gordon to disappear Soli. off of Memphis TV. Dave Brown going to make his return the first week of 85. Yay! Lawler disappears yeah. from Georgia TV. He'll have to wait a few years for a world title in the AWA. And not that it means much by then. And uh, wait another couple years. And that rumored s- storyline that they, they, they've talked about, I don't know if you read that in the Observer and things back in the day, but... Right around, I think it was 91, they talked about uh, Lawler coming into WCW and maybe taking the belt from Luger to do something there. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it was, uh, I think the plan was like, you know, he was going to beat Luger and then Luger was going to win the belt back. And, and Lawler said, you know, basically what good this this do me in the long run. And then uh, he, he said, oh, Eddie Gilbert's told the story. It's gotten out to those sheets. We, we can't do this. So. <laughs> Damn that hot stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So this doesn't last long. Ole and Jarrett working together. Imagine that. And uh, they're, they're, Georgia pulls out of Memphis by the end of the year. And uh, you guys really don't understand the the happiness on Lance's face on that first episode of January 85 TV. When they come on the air, you see Lance smiling more so than usual. It was like a, a real – I'm not saying Lance didn't really smile, but it was just like a, he was overwhelmed with joy to announce Dave Brown – Davey's back – and uh, we, we appreciate, Gordon, what you did, but Davey's back. And it was just such a smile. And I put those shows up on my YouTube for everybody to follow along as we, we cover the TV uh, moving along. So I just wanted to put context to that smile when you guys go and watch that first episode of how happy and joyous Lance is to have Dave Brown back by his side. Well, you know, I, I've heard a lot of wrestlers complain 
you know, Gordon Soley tried to take up all my interview time. I, I had oh. to, you know, basically take a mic from him to do my interview. And I never gave that a lot of credence. <laughs> but when Gordon's calling those matches, you know, he's just taking all the air out of the room. There's there's no room for Lance to say much of anything. And uh, it, their, their two styles just did not complement each and other. Lance is such a good guy. You have to wonder if he ever complained, if he ever actually said anything about it, or if he just took it, even if it did bother him. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, knowing Lance, he probably just sat back and let the, he, he probably knew this wasn't working. And <laughs> so, yeah. if, he knew it, if he knew it, he probably figured that Lawler knew and, and the other people knew it wasn't working. So it's kind of funny. You talked about Gordon taking up other people's promo time because I've been doing 81 with Jamie Ward and whenever, you know, a few times Michael Hayes has called him out on that. And you can tell the difference between Hayes playing the heel character and Hayes just, you know, telling the truth. And he comes out there a couple of times like, Gordon, you know, you, you left me 30 seconds here to talk. You know, so it's, it's, it's kind of funny uh, when, when he does that. So it's funny you mentioned he was doing that to Lance here. Um, luckily, I got to skip over that. I haven't seen that in quite a while. It's definitely different to see Gordon Soley and Lance Russell, two of the best to ever do their thing, but in very different ways, you know, together. So sounds awesome. Sounds like, again, a Voltron of announcers, but you don't need that here in Memphis. I'm happy with my Lance and Dave. Yeah, I mean, it, it was shocking when you first saw it. And, I mean, Gordon did feel like here's a major league announcer. He'd been on cable television for so long, and he, he had that sense of gravitas, you know, that he, he, he was able to make things seem important. Um, but very quickly, it's like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's like you're walking into something for the first time. Wow, I can't wait to see this. But then you saw it, and you're done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it was it was, so, a, it was a noble exper- experiment, uh-huh. and like I said, it was fun to see uh, some of the Memphis guys on 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 the national cable television. I'll tell you who I did enjoy together was uh, in 1989 in the NWA was Lance Russell and Bob Cottle. Those guys got along, and it just worked. And I wish I'd seen that my whole life. Yeah, I mean, you got two, you know, kind of Southern gentlemen, right? Right. And those guys aren't going to step on each other. Those those guys were all about the product. They weren't about themselves. You know, they weren't trying to get themselves over. So, yeah, I I can see that working really well. Brother, we're going to move on from there. So we talked about some joint promotion working here, and you brought up a topic to me online. So I'm going to let you field this one. I wanted you to cover uh, Jerry Jarrett now working with Angelo Poffo, the Poffo family, formerly the ICW. But you were talking about how pa- Angelo still worked uh, a specific city and also Jarrett le- allowing him to use some of his video footage. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, there's there's been a lot of nostalgia, I think, about ICW in the last few years and international championship wrestling. And it's the promotion that was started in 1979 in Kentucky by the Poffos. And uh, at one point they folded in with some of the guys from East Tennessee that weren't happy with Ron Fuller. But in any way, you know, by, by late 1983, they had had to run, you know, they, they knew it wasn't going to work. You know, they had tried to compete against Memphis and they, they never could really become an arena level sort of promotion. It was kind of a spot show type of promotion. Right. And uh, they, they had done all these grandstand challenges on the air to Lawler for years, promoting matches that would never happen. They had, you know, done things like show up in Rupp Arena when the Memphis crew was there to antagonize them. So there was there was a lot of legitimate heat between a lot, uh, between a lot of people the- from the Attitude Era scratching their head right now. One territory yeah. invading another one's arena, uh, uh, challenging guys to pay per view fights that never happen. Yeah, these things. Where do you think things, the ideas came from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the story is they would legitimately buy front row tickets 
and just try to, you know, start fights with the Memphis guys, to, to, you know, to, to try to get some publicity. Um, but anyway, it folds at the end of 1983. Lanny Poffo goes to Mid-South. And there's kind of a storyline for the first few weeks. You, you kind of get the feeling that, you know, Randy might be coming right. in the Mid-South. And they, they, they even aired a Randy Savage video. Right. But eventually, you know, Watts and Jarrett were working together at that point, you know, they, they knew the money with, with the Savage was against Lawler and Memphis. So they work out a deal for Savage to come in. I think this was late 1983. And uh, I mean, they did some, some really good business for a while, but Angelo's problem is he's still got some television contracts. Mm -hmm. And the one that I've heard about the most was in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, which was probably a town of about 25,000 people at that point, about two hours south of St. Louis. Uh, but they were running shows regularly there, but they didn't have any wrestling shows to put on the air in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. So Jarrett would give him a copy of, of the Memphis tapes, and then they would cut those up, and they would use those Memphis arena matches and call them ICW. <laughs> and there's actually a uh, YouTube video of Liz Hewitt, the, the future oh, yeah. Elizabeth, doing the announcing and cutting the matches with, like, Here's an ICW match, and it's Adrian Street against somebody in Memphis, you know. So let me let me ask you yeah. something. I don't I don't know if you've actually you know done any research, saw any of the results locally. Were they they were running shows in Cape Cape Girardeau still as well, not just having to air the TV, correct? Correct. Correct. So I'm assuming the people that were working the shows in Cape Girardeau were not the people we were seeing on the TV program. You know, they would bring in some of the Memphis talent, from what I've heard. Now I have not been able to find. I looked. I tried to look through the Cape Girardeau newspaper archives. I couldn't find cards there, but I've had people online tell me like the fabulous ones would come up. King Conga, the future barbarian, was working in Memphis. There is a tape of him working against Randy Savage in Cape Girardeau. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a complete Memphis crowd, but it was it was kind of it was kind of like a Memphis, you know, they're booking a spot show every week and, and they're getting whatever talent they can get in to, to work the spot. Show. Yeah. I was just curious. Uh, I was just curious. I was wondering who was filling the gaps, if you know what I mean. So it could have been very interesting undercard. Yeah. I, yeah. I have no idea. I haven't seen, I've not been able to find those complete cards anywhere, but, but what makes the story even kind of more interesting, especially given Angelo Poffo's reputation as the miser, you know, he created right. a character sure. miser and called sure. him that about, Ten years later, I, you know, in, in sometime in the '90s, all these this Memphis 1984 wrestling stuff starts showing up everywhere in these wrestling gold compilations. So what Angelo had done is he'd taken the tapes that that Jerry Jarrett had given him <laughs> to run on his own television stations, and he sold them to a third party. I think it was a guy named Kit Parker, and then they're out on you know VHS and DVDs all over the country. And of course, Jarrett and Lawler get, get nothing from any of that. So. A very miserly move on the part of Angelo uh, Poffo. Well, he had to salvage something out of this ICW debacle. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even if it was somebody else's product. That's so. right. Hey, it's pro wrestling. That's what you're right. It's just how you just, it just bees that way sometimes, Steve. There's no honor among thieves. I, That's I right. get it. So I, I, I wanted to pick your brain and probably maybe you just know, you know, I, I was trying to guess here because I was looking at a lot of, of the stuff that was going on in the latter half of 84 going into 85. Did you determine who you thought was booking at this point? The story is always Lawler would take six months and Jarrett would take six months. They'd switch back and forth. We know some of the other guys would fill in too, but most usually it was Lawler or Jarrett. Based on the talent, based on what was going on here at the end of 84 with Ole coming in too, could you determine who was who had the book at this point? 
Yeah, I, there, there's some things early 1984, like the first half of 1984. I think Lawler was definitely booking. Uh, you had Austin Idol in regularly. Uh, that oh, was, that was that, Yeah, that was the guy Lawler always wanted. You had the Lord, Lord Humongous gimmick being created. That's sure. that's a Lawler thing. Uh, he had a guy who had wrestled in Florida, Scott McGee, that he called Scott Shannon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the history of Lawler and Scott Shannon. No. Um, okay. Educate. Okay, so there is a disc jockey. I think he's based in New York now. He's still a working disc jockey, I think, named Scott Shannon. Right. Who the big disc jockey in Memphis when Jerry Lawler was a teenager. Uh, so they he has some sort of radio contest where he wants people to send in artwork about this monster character that he's created on radio. And Lawler sends in just a number of drawings, a ton of drawings. And Lawler doesn't win the contest, but he develops this relationship with Scott Shannon. And Scott Shannon helped Lawler make a demo radio tape that landed Lawler's first job in radio. Now, I knew he'd gotten into radio. I just didn't know how, you know, how that came about. I, I, I probably heard Lawler tell the story years ago, but just not something that, that I absorbed in my mind. But very cool. So that's kind of where you got the name from, little homage. Right, exactly. Okay. And then in... June, July timeframe, I think Jarrett takes over the booking. Uh, you see Idol leave. You see guys come in like Tojo Yamamoto. Oh, yeah. Phil Hickerson, who had not been in wrestling for about four years. You see him back in the territory. You see Frank Morrell. So you see some local guys who are, you know, they're not going to be fly-ins. They're more affordable. <laughs> more affordable. <laughs> you kind of see that. And then November and December, you know, I almost wonder if it goes back to Lawler for a little bit. You see Don Bass and Roger Smith come in. You see Jerry Bryant on some of the Mid-South Coliseum cards. Right. Uh, I'm not sure at that time frame. And we know Tom Renesto would take over the book sometime pretty early in 1985. So I, I think, you know, definitely Lawler, first half of the year, Jarrett, most of the second half, and maybe a combination. There is, there is a- I was wondering with Lawler going down to Georgia some in the in the last couple months of the year, if, if Lawler was splitting the book or something at that point. Yeah, it could have been. Uh, one of the things that's interesting was there was a character uh, that showed, wrestled one week at the Mid-South Coliseum named Jason based upon the Friday the 13th horror movie. <laughs> so the guy in a Jason mask, and he's just covered from head to toe in, in garb. You, you have no idea who he is. Sounds and like I've actually be, uh, trademark issues with that nowadays. <laughs> You would think so. Yeah. But Ronnie P. Gossett has said that Lawler actually worked as Jason. Wow. I'm not sure on that particular night that the person looks physically bigger than Lawler. But it's interesting that one night in the Mid-South Coliseum, he works the opening match and they put that on the television station the next Saturday and it's never heard from again. So that's just a <laughs> history there. That's very interesting. I got to go back and watch. I- I haven't studied the uh, the history of the the monsters coming through Memphis in quite a long time. It was a long time ago. I, I did a lot of research, and I was just like marking out because Lawler would always it was notorious for those things. And it was, I was trying to get an idea of all of the different characters he created, Jason being one of them. So very cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he lived in that comic book world. You know, he loved Kiss as a rock band because of the you know spectacular show. He liked those kind of larger than life characters, you know. So if he could create a a legitimate monster character versus a Joe LaDuke monster character, he was he was more than happy to do that. And it was the way to steal a house sometimes. 
if you know you didn't have a lot to book, you take right. a guy and you put him in some sort of monster mask and and change you know the way the style he works for a week and and, and maybe you draw a house out of that. Well, we're setting the stage for 85 here, so I don't want to dwell too much on the talent that's going to be gone by the end of the year, but there's just a couple of quick topics I wanted to hit on that were happening right before we head into the new year. Some of the names are going to disappear here, guys, and we're not going to be able to see them in 85, so I wanted to hit on them real quick with Steve, and uh, one of them was uh, Ravishing Rick Rude, or Rick Rude at this point. Rick is here as part of Jimmy Hart's Heel Stable, the first family, but there's a period in, I think, October-ish where Rick Rude goes babyface. So at one point, we see Jerry Lawler, Rick Rude, and the Macho Man on the same team, which is just insane to think about <laughs> when, you, when, you, you know, when you go back and just think of the, the names involved there. But I was curious, like, uh, did you, were you, you were, I know you said you were out of state at one point, at least in 85, but were you watching at the period when uh, Rude and King Kong Bundy and the like were here? And do you recall the Rick Rude babyface turn? Yeah, I, I wasn't watching at the time. I was living in California. The interesting thing about Rude, this was his first push. He'd been on Georgia television as an underneath guy. He'd been in Mid-South as an underneath guy. Jerry Jarrett and Watts are working together. They do that talent swap. And Rick Rude is the guy from Mid-South who gets the biggest push. Uh, for, for people who are very curious about that, the other guys that came in from Mid-South were Jim Neidhart, Masaya Ito, and Hacksaw Higgins. So, uh, what a treat. Why, why, with uh, the the uh, Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express and Terry Taylor than, than Jerry Jarrett did on his side of the equation. But yeah, it was, you know, you, when you saw Rude, you know, as an underneath guy in these different chairs, you, you knew he had the potential to be a star. So that was the first place he was pushed as a main event level guy. And, you know, bless his heart, you know, some people just can't be a baby face. And Rick Rude no. was a terrible baby face. No, <laughs> and, yeah. And it didn't last see, long. It did not last long. If you see uh, most of his interviews during that time are pre-taped, I guess they didn't want him, you know, doing, you know, either he couldn't make it or they just didn't want him on a live TV doing the interviews. Right. But he was such a natural heel. I just, and of course, you know, people say it's always easier to get over as a heel than a baby face. It's easier to make people dislike you than to dislike you. There's just some natural heels though. I get what you're saying. Yeah, and it, I just think it didn't work. And then, of course, he was going to be leaving the territory. And so then, you know, you switch him back very quickly and you have the blow-off match with Lawler for a big house before he leaves. You know, I forgot. I hadn't went back to this time period in quite a while in Memphis. Usually it's like 86 forward because all the TV's out there. But now, thanks to people who work very hard, like Blair Krieger, who just for years put together this monster. That's what you're seeing on YouTube right now, guys, is all of his hard work going to old time tape traders like Charles Warburton and the like, just grabbing any little thing he could to the point where he has all 52 episodes of studio TV. 50 of those 52 are actually the Memphis feed, which is 90 minutes instead of the 60 minute show, which was aired everywhere else. So very cool stuff. But there was a, a name on here that struck me because I'd forgotten he even came through here at this point because I've been covering him right now in the UWF with Roman Gomez. And that's Korchenko. Uh, to see Korchenko oh, pop up here. <laughs> the world's most bargain basement dime store Russian that you could ever find. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, he had worked a little bit uh, for, for the Fullers, I think, in 83. Not a long run there. Came into Memphis. Some of the campiest, worst, fake Russian promos you'll ever see. Uh, he was in Memphis for about a month. You probably know what happened to him in mid mid south and how oh, yeah. he left that. We're, get, we're getting there right now. He just he just uh, got into a fight with Bill Watts, so the end is near. 
Right, right. A very infamous story and wrestling legend. Uh, but yeah, uh, the, I, the only other time I saw a result for him after he left Mid-South was I think he showed up for a card or two in Kansas City in like 1989. Okay. Um, and, and I don't know if he ever worked under any other names or gimmicks, but, but that was just terrible. I saw him uh, as an underneath guy around 82 or so as Vladik Smirnoff in the Mid-South. So when he comes back here a lot bulkier in 86 Mid-South UWF as Korchenko, I don't know, you know, and, uh, Watts was smart, though. Never let him talk. Let Eddie Gilbert do all the talking for him. <laughs> Watts loved the xenophobic stuff. I mean, he, he loved the, the, he loved the Russian angles. I mean, that was just bread and butter for him. I started to do more uh, notes for my Mid-South show last night, and I stopped after five minutes. Not for any particular reason. I just started doing other work. But uh, in the very opening, Bill Watts is putting over his feud with Korchenko and Dr. Death's on Watts's side. And as they show Dr. Death working out, Bill's comments were, Dr. Death hates the Russians. He even hated him in college. I said, I don't even know what the hell that means. <laughs> it's just ingrained in his soul. That he he hated him in college, for my God. So In your high. Yeah. <laughs> you know, another real interesting name that was lower in the card in, in that time frame. Uh, they first brought him in as Dr. Detroit under a hood, mm-hmm. uh, but it was Crawford, the snowman. He would later go get the JYD push in Mid-South in 1985. So it's interesting to see him during this time frame in Memphis. Yeah, that worked out well, uh, all those JYD pushes in Mid-South. But <laughs> yeah, Snowman had the look. You know, it was all about the looks. Snowman had the look. Yeah, I, I recently saw his debut, and it was funny that, you know, he, he wins his short match with a power slam, just like JYD would have won the match. I mean, right. it was just like, they, they just had bright lights all over him. Like think of JYD, think of JYD. Well, it beat master G at least the character. I'm sure George Wells could work a little better, but yeah, that's uh, true. Jacques Rougeau. He had been here a couple of times, Jerry Roberts, and now Jacques Rougeau here, his heel run here is underrated. I laugh whenever I see a Jacques Rougeau heel promo in any era. It just, it fit him. You talk about natural heels. All that time Vince wasted having the Rougeos on his roster as baby faces, but the crowd's booing them anyway, or not caring or going to the bathroom. And then they turn them heel and just instant. It worked. Oh, yeah. I, I always found him extremely entertaining as a heel. And, you know, he's French Canadian. You're in Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, it's just natural to, to make that character heel. And uh, he, you could tell he just loved being in that heel role. Oh, he yeah. was very boombox Jacques Rougeau. What a character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we talked about, you know, some of the guys that came in like Ronnie Garvin and the Irwins, uh, but there was some other talent that were coming in as well. You t- touched on why you thought Lawler was booking the interns come in mask guys, Don Bass and Roger Smith. How many gimmicks have they had? I don't know. Well, yeah, a lot the assassins, fire and flame, the interns working without the mask. You know, they would just bring him back every year or so under a different gimmick, basically. So, I mean, there's a lot of tag teams, though, coming in here. Do you know the creation of this Tim Ashley, Steve Constance tag team? Because I don't know off the top of my head how this came about. I don't either. I could not find. um, I think maybe I saw Tim Ashley had worked an ICW card before coming into Memphis. Maybe in West Virginia, not 100% positive on that. Okay. Uh, but I really don't know. I mean, Jarrett was always, you know, looking for, you know, the good looking underneath babyface team. 
they, they paired him up with the Nightmares, who were the experienced heel team that can kind of teach him the ropes, literally. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know a lot about their background, and, and you've probably covered in Mid-South how Tim Ashley left the uh, wrestling business as well, which is kind of an interesting story. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, I, I try to go back to the beginning of things, and obviously Memphis didn't have a developmental territory. It didn't have uh, the snake pit like snake Florida pit. did. Jerry Lawler sure wasn't sitting around after the shows trying to show guys a few things. So I was just curious how they came about because they tried. he tried to utilize them and try to make them into something here. Props to that. You know, Johnny Will Hoyt, same thing. We, well, I think by October we get both Batten twins because it's only uh, Bart, right, Mark, Batten for a while, and then Brad comes in, or is it vice versa? I don't really remember, but... So both Battens are here now, too. So we got a lot of uh, upper-tier uh, preliminary guys. Yeah, I, mean, I know Will Ho- Hoyt had worked some in ICW, the Batten twins as well. Um, so that may have been, you know, Randy Savage trying to get those guys some work. Lost my train of thought here. So. <laughs> you're fine, you're fine. I, just, I was just name-dropping some of the underneath guys, trying to give them a little prop here, a little respect. Jerry Bryant, you pointed him out, too, because you said Lawler might have been booking because Jerry Bryant was being used, which Bryant was a – a guy that Lawler would use in this time period specifically. Right. Bryant uh, started at about the same time that Tommy Rich did. And Lawler actually thought that Bryant was going to be the big star and Rich wasn't. And Jarrett said, no, Rich is going to be the star and Bryant won't. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> he had to keep showing. I get, I get it. <laughs> but uh, in terms of Memphis not having a, a developmental territory, you're absolutely right on that. Uh, but there was a guy in Kentucky named Dale Mann and there were several guys that started there that worked in Memphis. Bobby Fulton started there. Billy Travis started there. Downtown Bruno was there before he was in Memphis. Was it Dale Mann or Henry Rogers where Eddie Gilbert got his start? No, yeah, no. Henry Rogers was in Malden, Missouri. Here, here's how the, different the world is today. I grew up 45 minutes from Malden, Missouri. They had wrestling there every Saturday night. I never knew that existed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because they had no television. You know, we wouldn't be getting a newspaper from Malden, Missouri, in the little town I lived in, Northeast Arkansas. But yeah, I mean, Savage worked there. Uh, Lou Fez worked there at one point in the 70s. I mean, you get all sorts of guys that would work these shots for Henry Rogers in Malden, Missouri. And I'm pretty sure that's the only town he ran. But yeah, that, they would send Coco Ware, worked up there before he went to Memphis. Uh, I think a lot of the guys Herb Welch trained would go up there. I think okay. David Schultz worked up there. So maybe so Wayne Ferris of, came through there too then. He, possible. Yeah, possible. So, yeah, a, a lot of guys did, you know, and there are some newspaper clips. A lot of them. There's, there's a ton of them. Yeah. It's, thanks it's, to Terry it, Justice. Yeah, some you, you'll see at some points they'll regularly be in the newspaper and then they drop out for periods of time. So I guess – at points they thought it was worthwhile <laughs> advertising, at points they didn't care to do it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if I could build a time machine, I'd probably be in Malden, Missouri every Saturday night from 1980 to 1983. That would have been quite no interesting. Idea. Yeah, had no idea any of that was going on. Very cool. Well, I didn't want to cut you off on your Dale Mann story, so we can go back to Dale Mann if I didn't make you lose your train of thought. Well, I, I you know, it, I'm just saying that some of those underneath guys like Steve Constance and Tim Ashley, that's a place they might have gotten some experience because I know a lot of guys work there, even PG-13, Jamie Dundee and Wolfie D, that, that's where they got the, they started the PG-13 gimmick, was working for Dale Mann. Okay. So even, I wonder what he thought of that the, gimmick. Hey, I got an idea. <laughs> 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 well, the, the guy they actually credit is uh, Chris Champion. He's, oh, okay. They, they were working 
individually and both kind of doing the the white boy right. rapper jc J- ice baby i remember that in dallas yeah yeah and uh champion said you guys need to form a tag team and work together you guys might form one up. one solid wrestler <laughs> they were both about 100 pounds so right. they went. <laughs> no offense i you know i grew up watching you know pg-13 and i bought it you know i bought the the gimmick and the, and the team I, I i enjoyed it yeah i mean they were good workers uh jamie dundee really pushed the envelope on how much you could believe somebody could win a wrestling match but <laughs> yeah yeah they were entertaining with a mouth like that though you have to think he, could, he was able to back it up a little bit to, to last as yeah. long as he did <laughs> well you know who knows how many beatings he took from bill dundee that's right <laughs> so, yeah but uh, uh yes I, they didn't have a formal developmental system but they knew who the independent guys that were promoters were in tennessee and kentucky and i think sometimes they would go and kind of scout some of those guys a little bit so uh before we get into 85 we're going to look at a, a pair of mid-south coliseum shows at the end of 84 and kind of look at the roster that was there at the end of the year steve and maybe dissect a couple of the matches along the way and so starting right off at least by my dates it looks like there was a mid-south coliseum card on a friday special friday show perhaps here december the 28th on the undercard lanny poffo still there over the spoiler probably frank morell i'm assuming uh candy divine over amy monroe Plowboy Frazier back in the area. I think he's still Plowboy here. I don't, I don't think he's Playboy till, for another week. Uh, but Plowboy Frazier yeah. over Tojo. It's the Nightmares over Tim Ashley and Steve Constance. Dirty White Boys Dirt defeating White. the interns. We're going to touch on a couple of these feuds. Mid-American champion. How about this name? As a champion here, Mike Sharp going to a no contest with Jimmy Valley. That would be a barn burner. <laughs> well, you know, um, Mike Sharp was one of those guys – and, and sometimes I don't think Memphis really understood how much cable television was impacting their world. You know, he had come from the WWF where he, you know, he had started getting a push there when he debuted. Right. But he was for a few years, he'd been pushed down the card. He'd been doing, you know, high profile jobs on television mm-hmm. and they bring him to Memphis and they, they put him in this kind of semi main event spot. There's a story a few years ago uh, before this, there was a guy named Coca Samoa who was right. wrestling in Southwest Championship Wrestling. Mm-hmm. And Lawler was doing some shots down there. It was Joe Blanchard's territory. And they bring him into Memphis. And, and this guy was a job guy in Southwest Championship Wrestling. And they call him Sabu, the wild man from Borneo. And he comes in and he beats Lawler in the main event the first night. You know, if you had cable, you're looking at this and going, what the hell? <laughs> That's Coco Samoa. I, I have the USA Network. I've, I've seen a <laughs> spitting image anyway. Yeah, that- know, so they were taking guys who were high profile national television, low card guys, and then putting them in main event or semi main event positions. And, you know, it just did not reflect well on the territory. You know, I think it was uh, Jamie Ward, my co-host for the Georgia shows that told me uh, Terry Funk made a comment one time. <laughs> That when they sold Amarillo, uh, Funk got wind of cable and he saw TBS. He saw wrestling on TBS. It was going to go national. And he, he knew then, he said, that was the beginning of the end, you know, for the territories, you know, over the long haul. Because things like you just mentioned, you can't take this guy who was a prelim guy in one territory and now push him as the main eventer over here. Because even though they have never seen him in Memphis, maybe some of the Memphians they have cable or a satellite dish and they have seen them, you know, work, it worked down there in, in Southwest in, in San Antonio. So yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it was, it was very funny. The promo Lawler did like the next Saturday, if he lost the belt, 
you know, they show the tape and, and Lawler gets beat and, and he just looks like he's being completely dominated in the match. And he goes, I don't know who edited that tape, but I got a lot more offense in than that show. <laughs> oh, he had to be pissed. <laughs> oh, man. He had to be pissed. Yeah. So <laughs> he I'm mentioned sure that on the TV. Like, hey, do you know, do you know who you lost to here? You know, <laughs> you know where he was before then? But um, Mike Sharp and Jimmy Valiant. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> when Jimmy Valiant came to Memphis in 1977, he was a sensation. You know, people just loved him, but he was never a great worker. And then you got Mike Sharp doing that kind of slow plotting Northeast arena style of work. And whew, that, that's that's some tough matches to watch. Yeah, at least he finally worked the grunts and, you know, later on. So at least you could be entertained by that in his later right. years, you know, Mike Sharp. But yeah, so I should mention, guys, for those who are new to how Memphis worked back then, at this point, there were three singles titles and the AWA Southern Tag Team titles. Now, the singles titles, I just mentioned Mike Sharp as the Mid-America champion going into the new year, but there was also an international title, which at this point was held by Eddie Gilbert. But here on December 28th, Eddie loses the belt to Terry Taylor. And this is very interesting because we're going to see in the first week of 85, Taylor cut this lengthy promo, this sit-down promo in a suit talking to Lance Russell, and then we never hear from him again until the month of July when he returns to drop the belt. (laughs) Yeah, it, it, a really weird situation, and you almost wonder if, you know, he was just taking a break from Mid South for a couple of weeks, and they booked him on some shows over the holidays or something. Uh, it's it's just strange because he was very established in Mid South territory at that time, and that entire interview is basically talking about the Mid South territory. So so it is strange that they brought him in like that. But you know, he, he was a good worker. He was good babyface. So you know, I'm I'm sure that sold some tickets. Yeah, it's just weird that they give him a belt. And it's like, okay, well, you know, and then it just lays dormant for seven months. And instead of having a tournament or something, it's like, oh, Terry's back. He can he can do he can do the work this week. I don't remember who he loses to in July. I just know the belt changes, you know, like seven months down the road. Yeah, belts could come and go in, 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 Memphis. in the Memphis territory without a lot of uh, explanation. You know, it was just, oh, whatever happened to this title? And they, they wouldn't even announce it sometimes. You know, they had a TV title in the early 80s. And I think Stan Hansen was the last guy to be the, have the TV title, and it just never gets mentioned again. And the main event here on the 28th, it's Jerry Lawler defeating the exotic Adrian Street by disqualification. Adrian Street, one of my favorites of all time to never really make it national, probably likely due to his size. But, man, if they could figure out a way to utilize him, man, because he was just tremendous at what he did. Now, and he was a shooter in the ring. He could break your ankle if he wanted to. But he had this awesome gimmick with the valet, Miss Linda. Uh, you know, even WWE, Triple H must have had a big fandom for him because they gave him a documentary on there. And Street never had anything to do with the WWF or WWE. Yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, tremendously entertaining. The, the, you know, he had debuted in Memphis a few years before this. And when he did, um, he kissed an African-American wrestler on television and then pinned him. And the shockwaves throughout, you know, where I lived in Northeast Arkansas, it felt like an earthquake when Adrian Street kissed a <laughs> man on Memphis television. I could be it wrong, was- but I swear they did a gimmick, too, where he kisses Terry Taylor and beats him for a belt, maybe a TV belt or something. Yes, they did that in Mid-South. Yeah, he kisses him, and then they're just so shocked, and then he just rolls them up for what the a win. Finish. What uh, a finish. Different yeah, times, yeah. and certainly down in the South, I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was not pushing the envelope. That was like throwing the envelope <laughs> over the, you know. Exploding the, the envelope. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I was kind of surprised, you know, they brought him back against Lawler in the main event. But, 
he had not been in the territory for a while, so he was kind of a fresh returnee. And because uh, he he wasn't really, you know, he had feuded with Dundee when he, when he was there prior, and he really wasn't promoted as being on Lawler's level in his earlier run in Memphis. But you know, it was going to be an entertaining match, that's for sure. So we roll on the final card of the year, December 31st, New Year's Eve in the Mid-South Coliseum, Monday night, 9,000 fans out. So that's a pretty good draw there. Uh, on the undercard is Tojo Yamamoto over Jerry Bryant, says by count out. Don't know how Tojo couldn't get that one done. The Batten Twins defeating Stan Frazier in a handicap match. Would have liked to see how that played out. The Interns over the Dirty White Boys, Tony Anthony and Lynn Denton. Now that's a feud we can talk about in just a minute too. Some of the uh, stuff they have going on between the two. Another feud, the former Nightmares, if you want to refer to them as that. No more paint, no more masks. I'm talking about Ken Wayne and Danny Davis defeating Tim Ashley and Steve Constance in a Loser Leaves Town match. Now, there's a good catch to that, and we'll talk about that, too, in just a minute, Steve. Adrian Street over Johnny Wilhoyt. Mike Sharp over Jimmy Valiant. So they get a rematch. It's a Coward Waves the Flag match. So, I, I mean, I don't really have much to say about that. And in the main event, it begins, Steve. Jerry Lawler going to a no contest with hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. So we'll get to Gilbert and Lawler in a second, if that's okay with you. And let's just touch on the tag teams real quick. The interns and the dirty white boys and Troy Graham involved in that wheelchair. Tell me a little bit your opinion about Troy Graham, not just in the wheelchair, but overall his, his wrestling character, whatever you want to call it. And then let's talk just a little bit about the interns uh, and Troy Graham against the dirty white boys. Yeah. Troy Graham was, was a fantastic interview. He was kind of like a, a white rapper before we know what, knew what rapping was. You know, he would come out yeah. and he had all these like weird sayings that he he would throw out. Uh, a good worker in the in the ring. Uh, he he'd been. I mean, he loved Memphis wrestling. At one time, Valiant tried to get him to come into the Carolinas, and and Graham was like, "No, I can't leave Memphis." You know, of course, he would have made much more money in the Carolinas. Oh, yeah. but he was he was just. That's all he wanted to do in life was be in Memphis wrestling. And he'd actually had a badly broken like leg or ankle earlier in the year. And there's a story, and I don't know how true this story is, that he was suing the promotion or trying to sue the promotion. So that's why they brought him back in the manager role. But, you know, he, he was a great talker. So why not have him as a manager? I mean, that makes sense. When, when Lawler came back from his, from his leg injury and was out for like a year, mm-hmm. Uh, 79, 80, whatever that year was. His first match back was with Troy Graham under a hood with, with Troy Graham doing a like dream machine, right. acting like he's a uh, dusty roads. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you know, they sell out the Coliseum because it, it really didn't matter who you put in that role. But, you know, Graham was great. He was a fantastic worker. Yeah. One of my favorites to listen to. I mean, he, he really got the whole thing. I mean, he didn't look like a whole lot, I guess is the only thing negative I can say about him, but man, I mean, just everything else, he had the charisma and it, even in a wheelchair and it wasn't Ron Wright's sympathetic heel wheelchair stuff here. This dude had like some major serious broken leg situation going on that pulled him out of that Bruce brothers gimmick. You touched on mad dog Boyd replacing him there. And uh, it's it's unfortunate that that happened because I feel like he was really going to take off. You know, there was already a deal in place to bring the Bruce, Bro- the Bruce Brothers. Yes, not the Blues Brothers uh, down to Mid-South. But unfortunately, by the time you know it came to fruition, it was Mad Dog Boyd instead of the original promo we got with Troy Graham. So it is what it is. But here they are. Uh, Troy Graham managing his interns. That's Roger Smith and Don Bass under the hoods uh, version 7.0 here and uh, taking on the Dirty White Boys. 
Uh, also, the nightmares, though, they had been in masks originally. They went to the face paint. And by this point, they're just normal guys. Danny Davis and Ken Wayne feuding with Tim Ashley and Steve Constance. And here on this show, at the end of the year, loser leaves town. Ashley and Constance have to leave the territory. Or do they? They will return under masks, kind of like the nightmares. And who better to face off against the nightmares than the daydreamers? How clever. Yeah, you know, that was, uh, I mean, every territory was running that angle. And, and I think Memphis had already done that. You know, Coco Ware loses a loser's lead town, comes back under a mask as Stagger Lee. And so, you know, it really devalued the loser leaves town. But, you know, it's always, oh, the baby face lost, but they, they, they were cheated. And so they come back and, and it's okay because they should have never left in the first place. You know, that was always the storyline. Well, they were really trying there with these two, clearly at this point. They gave them something more because, as you said, you know, this wasn't the junkyard dog losing town, you know, leaving town and coming back or, or Dusty Rhodes or Bill Watts, the, you know, a midnight rider or, or whatever the case may be. This was Steve Constance and Tim Ashley, right? And they come back doing the gimmick. So clearly Lawler or whomever was booking had some sort of investment in them that they saw something in them to try to do something with them. Yeah, I'm guessing that that was a Jarrett that put that team together. It just feels like the sort of babyface team that he always liked to push. And they did get a decent push here, you know, for, for guys who were absolutely unknown before they came into the territory. And uh, last but not least, as far as feuds go, going into the new year, not very many, I told you guys, but just getting started here, Jerry Lawler and Eddie Gilbert uh, going to a no contest at the end of the year. Now, that's going to lead to a This Is Your Life segment coming up on the first week of January television. But tell everybody a little bit about that Eddie Gilbert and his love for Jerry Lawler and everything that unfolds here. Yeah, well, you know, Eddie Gilbert, you know, the son of Tommy Gilbert, and he actually debuted in Memphis Wrestling in like 79 is. Tommy Gilbert Jr., but his his idol wasn't his father in the ring. His idol was Jerry Lawler, and he wanted to be the next king of Memphis. He wanted to be the next Jerry Lawler, so he patterned his working after Jerry Lawler. He would do, you know, Jerry Lawler gimmicks. Like, you know, at one point, Lawler did like kind of this army soldier type gimmick that Gilbert would later do. He would later do the king gimmick in early ECW, but Gilbert was just hugely he idolized Jerry Lawler and he wanted to be Jerry Lawler. And that this is your life segment is, is just him doing what Jerry Lawler would have done 10 years prior to that. You know, it's, it's just an excellent segment. And Lawler even said, you know, when I wrestled Eddie Gilbert, it was like I was wrestling myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he trusted him and hit him with a car and everything along the way. Lots, lots of yeah. stuff to unpack between those two. And people, people don't know the ratings and share that uh, the Memphis wrestling promotion got there in the Memphis the city of Memphis. And I would say that just the, by ratings, even though it's local and it's a lot less people, the ratings were probably higher here for this is your life segment versus the rock and mankind one or the Mick Foley one from years later. So just another thing that was done long before it was done in a WWE ring. Yeah, one interesting note about Jimmy Valiant's run at this time, uh, he had came came in from Mid-Atlantic, and uh, one of the ways that they sweetened the deal to get Valiant to come back to Memphis was that this was when they actually bought him a house. So <laughs> he says, I'll come back if you buy me a house. Jarrett said, okay, I'll do it. And so he buys him a house in Memphis, 
and uh, <laughs> it didn't work out very long. But you know, what what a way to entice the talent into a territory. I don't think I don't think that's happened very often. Do you think Jimmy just threw that out there expecting Jarrett to you know scoff at that because we we know Jarrett's kind of cheap in in uh, whatever degree. So it just seems kind of funny that Jimmy would say, "Okay, give me a house so I don't have to." worry about traveling back to my home and you know, whatever, wherever he was keeping at that time, Atlanta or the Carolinas or whatever. Uh, but Jarrett says, okay. And Jimmy, you know, takes bites the bait uh, for at least a short period of time anyway. Yeah, I think so. I think it was one of those, you know, I'll, I'll throw out something ridiculous and you're not going to do it. And he goes, okay, I'll do that. And Lawler said that they later sold the house to a wrestling fan and, and everything in the house was black. Everything was painted black. Interesting. <laughs> What a character that Jimmy Valiant, the stories I've heard, but uh, you, you talked about, you know, you told me this off air and it's been, it's been out there. It's out there, but I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people like, I forgot about it until you said it and it, it dawned on me again, but there's probably a lot of people that haven't heard the story about how Jimmy Valiant disposed of his house, so to speak. Yeah. Valiant. Um, he wasn't very happy in this run in Memphis. He writes about it in his book and he said he was being booked out to third parties a lot. And we know this was, you know, he was going on Atlanta TV during this time. And I don't know if Jared also had him going to Puerto Rico or some of other independent territories. But Jared's taking a booking fee because he's trying to pay a house. Right. Right. So even though he's got this house, he's thinking, well, I'm I'm not really happy here because I'm not getting the money. I, you know, so it really didn't work out for him. And again, it's probably something he never really wanted to begin with. So uh, when he leaves the territory, he just walks to Lawler at the end of the night hands him the keys to the house and says, I'm out of here, brother. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. I don't know if, I don't know if you're in the know. I don't know if Jimmy Valiant mentioned this in the book or, or whatever. I was at one point anyway, under the impression that maybe Lawler didn't know the complete story about the house. Do you know if Jerry Lawler knew that Jerry Jarrett had paid for the house for Jimmy Valiant? I, I would think so. Uh, okay. I, I've not heard anything otherwise. I mean, Lawler did mention it in his book that, that's where he talked about everything being painted black and selling it to a wrestling fan. So <laughs> I could, I just, you know, I just picture it un unfolding with, uh, you know, Jimmy oh, Valiant yeah. handing Lawler keys going, here you go, brother. And Lawler going, what's this? Oh, it's my house. Jerry Jarrett paid for him, baby. Woo, mercy. I'm out of here. Yeah. I'm going back to Charlotte, baby. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going back to big mama. Yeah. Yeah. Just big mama. <laughs> wrestling is just such a bizarre world. I mean, that's why it's so endlessly fascinating. All these oh, things yeah. that happen in the world. You know, I, I, I mean, was talk, the, talking with Bob Roop, and he was talking about going to a convention down south, and taking one of his sons was going along with him because he was continuing on down to Florida. So he stopped in for a day, and he was listening to these wrestlers tell these stories that you would never believe ex existed or happened. But it was wrestlers, and yet it happened. You know, so right. I mean, the the, the things that happen besides behind the scenes are often much more fascinating than things that happen that you see. But yeah. uh, And I sum it up like this. If this happened today, like 95% of those wrestlers would be in prison for one, right. some way, shape or form. Yeah. There's no way you could live the <laughs> Memphis wrestling lifestyle in an age of iPhone cameras and social media would, would never happen. So we move on next topic. I labeled it uh, competition fit for a King. And I don't mean Lawler's opponents. I mean, people that were getting over to the level of Jerry Lawler. And maybe he wasn't so happy about that. And you brought up a good one to me. Uh, you want to tell everybody about the story of the fabulous ones, how they leave the territory and what Lawler does. And then they bring them back and it's just not the same. Okay. Yeah, there's a few instances that, and one of them goes back to Jerry Valiant when he first turned babyface 
and Jimmy Hart writes in his book about how angry Lawler was that that Valiant was getting this big baby face face push. So I guess he was worried about you know keeping his own position, and and he got kind of situated between Lawler and and Jared on that deal. And Jared was saying, "Oh, don't don't tell Lawler that, you, that we've got this video on Valiant." <laughs> oh my god! You know, like like kids, weird, right? So you fast forward to late 82, early 83, there's the situation that where Lawler's unhappy. They've always talked about, you know, Jarrett builds this mansion and outside of Nashville, Lawler sees it, just gets irate and says, I'm going to start my own promotion. He's, he's making all this money off of me. And, and that story has been out there forever. And about a year ago, Ricky Morton said, well, Lawler was very unhappy with the push that the fabulous ones were getting. He felt like they were getting too much of the spotlight with all the videos that Jarrett was making, them being in main event matches and, and parts of the territory. He felt like he was being his spot was being threatened a little bit, which was the first time I'd, I'd heard that come up. And if you read Steve Kern's book that came out within the last year, I mean, Kern and Lawler did not like each other at all. Kern thought that Lawler politic to keep himself in the main event, and therefore he's going to draw more money. And Kern thinks the fabulous ones are are drawing the houses. So we get to um, early 84 and there's this, this business disagreement between Kern and, and Lawler and Kern said it was like the last straw. It wasn't a major issue. If you looked at what, what he said it was, but it was just one of those things where like, I've had it with this right. guy. Done. The, like I'm you said, the last straw. I get you. Yeah. So the fabulous ones walk out of the territory and there's a video where, where Fargo just absolutely buries them. And he does it in such a calm way. He, he's not yelling. He's not showing any outrage. He's just talking very calmly, but they don't want to wrestle for Southern fans anymore. You know, they, they, do, they don't appreciate the people here in the South. They want to be in Chicago. They want to be in New York. I'm going to bring in some guys that you can be proud of. Enter <laughs> the so, new, new fabs. <laughs> right. So basically just saying, you know, you've got the legend of the promotion who, who, who gave them the rub that partially made them the stars that they were just saying, these guys don't care about you at all. They think you're garbage. They think they're too good for you. So they just bury the fabulous one. And yeah, then they basically, make the basically their storyline mentor because he was fabulous Jackie Fargo and they became the fabulous ones for those who don't know. And now here he is, you know, giving it to him on TV. But like you said, in a calm manner, so you, you sit down and you pay attention to it more because it didn't sound like a wrestling promo. It just sounded like a fact. Right, right. And so then they bring in, you know, Tommy Rich, who'd been, you know, the, <laughs> one of the top stars on cable television for like the past five years. And they stick him in this goofy, you're going to be the new fabulous one. Well, you know, I mean, drinking beer has a lot of benefits, I'm sure. But having rock hard abs and looking like a male stripper is not one of them. Right. So you know, Tommy Rich did not look like a fabulous one. And then they put Eddie Gilbert in the role. And that and Eddie had never really been a pushed wrestler in Memphis before. He was still kind of viewed at that point as Tommy Gilbert's son. So, you know, it buried Stan and Steve. It buried Tommy Rich. And then, you know, they bring the fabulous ones back in June <laughs> And, and as Steve Kernis said, it was never the same. He said when they came back, the reaction was never the same because they had been so devalued uh, by the Fargo promo. So, you know, there's Jerry Lawler. They talk about the politics involved. And I think anybody who was on top, I don't care how over they are, they have to play some sort of politics 
to be on top for as long as Lawler did. I've got to tell you, man, my top five favorite performers in the ring of all time, Jerry Lawler's in there. In fact, he's probably the only one still alive. So I'm a huge, huge Lawler, Mark. Even if I hated watching him on Dallas TV, on ESPN, because it was like 20 minutes of stalling every day after school. But I still still loved Jerry Lawler. Uh, I still love Jerry Lawler to this day, and it just helps that he's a Cleveland fan as well. So it's just, you know, I, I, I have this connection that with Jerry Lawler that he doesn't know about. <laughs> Lawler's one of the all-time greats. I mean, as a promo, in-ring performance, everything about the wrestling business, he's just fantastic. But, you know, I had a friend who, who managed a restaurant in Memphis, and Lawler would come into the restaurant every once in a while, and he'd say, you know, Lawler comes in, and he's a really nice guy, but boy, you can tell he's got an ego. <laughs> It's hard not to have one, I think, to some degree when you're the king right. of Memphis, right? I mean, right. I mean it, it, people help that along. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying Lawler's not to blame also, but I mean, when people are, you know, treating you that way around every corner, it's like you're an, an international star in one city, but you're that big oh, yeah. in that city. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about, you know, a town at that time that had no professional sports. I mean, he was the joe namath of memphis or whatever name you want to throw out there he was right. the major sports figure for that community and he was beloved and you know and like you say his talent is unquestionable all right so we're rolling down to the end of things here guys i got one more piece of business to talk about and that's the reset here heading into 1985 uh i got a little note here i wrote 1985 being a reset of sorts with very little from 1984 bleeding over into the new year we do know dave brown is back at the table first week of the year Yay, Gordon Sully gone. Several top talents departing. Rick Rude, King Kong Bundy, Dutch Mantell, Tommy Rich. We talked about it. Terry Taylor in and out. Several more on the way out, too. We know Jimmy Hart won't be here much longer. Headed for the WWF and then Macho Man a couple months after that. So a lot of guys leaving. A lot of big names, or at least they will become big names uh, in the WWF here not too long after this. But do you know the story? Was it just time to go? It's kind of odd that Rude and Bundy and all those guys, Dutch, Rich, they all left right around the same time. That's a lot of big names to just leave the territory all at once. Yeah, I, I really don't know. And I really don't know when Tom Ernesto took over as Booker and if that had anything to do with it. But I okay. but I think they're fairly early in 1985. So, so that may have played a part in it. And it, again, you know, the first part of the year – you know, it's it's hard to do business, right? You you've just gone through Christmas, the holidays, people don't have a lot of money. You know, you're probably trying to not have as many expenses on the card, basically. Right. Even so that, that New Year's card drew nine thousand. So maybe after Christmas, after New Year, maybe it's time to settle down with the pocketbook. Right, exactly. Which would explain the depleted roster because there's not a lot of people left here heading into the new year. And that's why I have a roll call of the the stars that are still left in the territory heading into the new year. Very few actually uh, on the baby face side. Of course, Jerry Lawler's still there. Shocker. I know macho man, Randy Savage, Jimmy Valiant, not there right now, but he will be back for more shots. That's really it on the top level baby face side. And then over on the heel side, Eddie Gilbert going to get a big boost, going to play the top heel, a thorn in the King's side. Adrian street still there with miss Linda manager. Jimmy Hart still there managing uh, iron Mike sharp and playboy Frazier. He was once Plowboy Frazier, now Playboy Frazier. That's yeah, not a lot of they, talent left. I mean, that's very few names. Very few. They they did uh, bring in the Rock and Roll Express back a little bit in early 1985, but yeah, it was it was a definitely a depleted roster at the top uh, during that time period. 
Yeah, just it's you really don't have a lot to work with. I'm not really you know giving giving any crap to the the, the names I, I ran off there, but that's it. I mean, maybe three baby faces, three heels, and and the singles department now and over the tag team side. Dirty White Boys still there. The interns still there. The Nightmares, uh, their counterparts, the Daydreamers. We're gonna find out. The Terminators come in, which are not Riggs and Wolf, which a lot of people may know from the later years if you really studied your independent wrestling, but rather Riggs and Crow. Uh, Crow being John Voight, not the actor. A couple of jacked up Minnesota boys. I, I presume they were trained by Eddie Sharkey. They worked for Sharkey quite a bit. Reportedly former bouncers. And uh, this is the first version of the team. Now Crow eventually going to be replaced by Wolf, Doug Fisher, after Crow goes to prison. But uh, the Terminator's headed in to be managed by Jimmy Hart. Yeah, and you know one of the things you'll see is, is 1985 goes on, and after Ernesto takes the book, when it's clear that he has it, uh, Randy Savage really gets a renewed push. And, and you could you could say that Savage was being pretty underutilized during that last part of 1984. Imagine now, he'd been there, yeah, <laughs> he'd been there for about a year. So you know you could say, well, maybe he was stale or something like that. But you know, if you if you know how to book, Randy Savage is not going to get stale. He's not going to allow himself to get stale. But uh, you right. know, I think that goes back to the Jimmy Valiant, the fabulous ones. You you believed Lawler was booking. That could explain why the Macho Man was just a you know a par below Jerry Lawler level at this point. But you're right. How do you how do you do that to a talent such as the Macho Man? Uh, we won't have to worry about that much longer, though. He's going to go off to bigger and better things, certainly financially. Right. Yeah. The the story Jimmy Hart tells is when he got to New York and Vince asked him about, you know, do you know any other good talent? And he said, yeah, the best wrestler in the world is starving to death in Memphis, Tennessee right now. So, well, he wasn't lying. He wasn't lying at all. Yeah. Uh, also back for the majority of the year, you touched on it already, the fabulous ones who had left after a disagreement. Jerry Lawler, what, final straw with Steve Kern, but they are back, and we'll see them quite a bit here in 1985. But you're right. even The, the fan reaction is great, but it's just not what it used to be. I don't know how to describe it. If you're watching the Fabs for the first time at 85, you're like, what's wrong with this? I don't understand what these guys are talking about. But go back and watch 82, 83 Fabs with the Moondogs and all that good stuff, and it's just – otherworldly over there they got that jyd type pop you know back in that run yeah they were they were like the beatles you know on their first run and now they're like a good garage band in this run that's 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 a good good analogy you know they 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 are just not at that stature that they were before which is unfortunate we got newcomers coming into the territory as well around this time i talked about the uh stars that we already know and love that, that are already part of the Memphis territory. But let's take a look at some of the names headed in, even if it's just for a week or two. Kevin Kelly, the future Nails, is going to run through here, do a job. I can't remember who it was to, but it was. I was like, wow, really? And uh, <laughs> but I know, I know yeah, he was green. He was a rookie, uh, and but he had that look. You know what I mean? Yeah, that seems really early for him, doesn't it? It's kind of shocking. Uh, the Terminators. I already talked about those guys. Joe Lightfoot, who. I don't remember off the top of my head if the first week he's a baby face or not, but I know he's going to wind up being a heel. And that kind of confused me. I'm like a heel Indian character back then. It was really weird. And, and he did start out as a heel and okay. he's doing a lot of moves that are kind of, you know, he's doing cartwheels and kind of baby face type moves. So it just didn't make, make a lot of sense. It was, it was hard to understand what they were trying and to I'm do. I'm not there. saying you can't turn somebody heel. Look at Wahoo going heel. You know, he had a good storyline behind him or the Briscoes, you know, uh, denouncing their, a Native American heritage to, you know, sell out for the mighty dollar at times. But I, Joe Lightfoot here just kind of walks in. I thought maybe the first week I couldn't remember because I remember the match looking like a baby face match, but I couldn't remember that promo. He cuts if it was face or heel, or maybe it was 
uh, you know, maybe it wasn't a heel promo, much like the wrestling. Maybe he didn't know how to cut a heel promo yet. I'm not sure. It really was just an introduction without really being much of a baby face or a heel in the promo. But yeah, I, I thought it was really odd the way they debuted him. Another name who doesn't stick around too long, but he's here long enough for you know me to take notice is Danny Hager, I believe managed by Jimmy Hart as well. Now, that's Dan Greer, Dan Fargo, uh, teamed with Eric Embry down in Southwest. I know you you shot me those notes, which I looked it up already. I'm pretty big on who is this guy, and I'm, it, it eats at me until I figure out who they are. So all I did was type in Dan Hager, and apparently that's his real name. His last name's Hager. So it was pretty quick to figure out who it was. But I do remember his run with Embry down in Southwest for Joe Blanchard. But you said something to me that it was Embry's friend, like, which makes sense. They're both from Kentucky. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Embry never got along with Ken Timms, uh, even though they were a push team, the fabulous, I think they were the fabulous blondes down there. Yes. But anyway, when, when Ken Timms left, uh, he called he called his friend and they went down there. And I heard him, you know, talk about that on a shoot interview. And I didn't know who he was talking about. I had not seen that footage before, but yeah, this, he, he worked in ICW as Danny Fargo. He had worked for Goulas as Joe Valiant. So he'd been a Fargo and a Valiant. Wow, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think he was another guy that, that probably did a lot of work for Dale Mann in that area being from Kentucky. Makes sense. Yeah. So he's yeah, going to so. be in here. He's a pretty big looking dude, at least at this point. I don't remember looking so big in, in San Antonio, but here he, he sticks out a little bit anyway. Yeah, he, he he does look different from the San Antonio run, definitely. And another name here, rock and roll, Buck Zumhoff. Not going to say a whole lot about him. Not really a fan of his uh, in personal life. Yeah, very very strange to see him on a card. I think it's just a one shot, and 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 it's like, what in the world was he doing in the territory for one night? <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I can't remember based on the results I was reading if it was one or two weeks, but it was very short. But again, it was like, why? He must have been traveling through. I don't really know what the situation was there. Did Vern not need him for a couple of weeks? I mean, yeah, Buck Zumhoff going to roll through here. Uh, he's better off where he belongs now in prison. And I'll leave it there. If you guys want to know more, just go Google it. Um, we'll uh, we'll move on here. Supplemental guys still on the roster. The Batten Twins, Lanny Poffo, Tojo Yamamoto, Gypsy Joe here for a little bit. Johnny Wilhoyt, Jerry Bryant. I think we're going to see Jerry do a little heel turn, uh, maybe on Wilhoyt or someone of his uh, caliber in a tag match upcoming. So they were trying to do things with Jerry Bryant from time to time. Yeah, they were. And, and you know, the more I look at kind of the roster and what's going on, I think Jarrett's probably still booking this part of the year. And then you get into March and you see a guy on the card named Speedy Talltree. Oh, yeah. And, and so <laughs> what that, is that? that is, yeah, it's a son of Tom Ernesto. Yeah. So at that point, you, you kind of know that, that the bookings change. Sweet Daddy Seeky comes in that week. So, Ooh. you know, so whenever, you know, they cut off, it, it was around this time period. But yeah, just just looking at how this was booked, I, I'm, I'm guessing this is more of a, a Jerry Jarrett booking. So uh, you, you mentioned Sweet Daddy Seeky and Speedy Talltree coming in. So people have a lot of odd things happen and know that a lot of things are uh, coming in, in the weeks and months here in Memphis 85. So hopefully they look forward to You never know, and this, this is true in any year of Memphis, but you never know what you're going to get out of Memphis TV program, and uh, certainly not this year. Yeah, that was one of the things that was so exciting when you're growing up and you're watching it is you just – from week to week, you had no idea who would be in the territory. And, you know, they used to do these one shots, you know, where Tully Blanchard comes in one Monday night or Crusher Blackwell 
so these people that you've read about in the magazines you've never seen, you know, they show up and they challenge Lawler. So that was one of the things that was really fun about the Memphis promotion was from week to week, you couldn't pr really predict, oh, here's what's going to happen. You know, here's what the card is going to be. Uh, so that was always a nice feature of Memphis wrestling. We know the Mid-American champion is Mike Sharp going into the new year. The AWA Southern Tag Team Champions, the in interns, defeated the Fabulous Ones. Wow. That would be interesting back on December 3rd. Now, those belts are going to be held up pending a tournament to decide new champions on January the 13th. So we're going to see new champs there very soon, or or will we? But the Southern Heavyweight Champion, the top title in the territory, currently held by, do you want to guess? Uh, I don't know. Is it Jerry Lawler? It is Jerry Lawler. It is, in fact, in 1984, <laughs> heading into 85, it is his 37th Southern title reign. Yeah, since he held it about 95 times, I thought that was a safe guess. Yeah, it was always, it's always a safe bet that Jerry Lawler is the Southern Champion. Yeah, which he would refer to as my title. <laughs> my title. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's actually held it here for a substantially long period of time in regards to Memphis because he beat Bundy for it back in November. And like two months later, Lawler still has the belt. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, quite a long stretch of time there for, for, the, uh, for the Memphis territory. That's true. You know, they'd, they'd hot shot that thing every other week. Some guy you'd never heard of would come into the territory. Yeah, oh, they give it to him. And Mountain Link is now the sub. Who? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, just so Lawler would have somebody to beat for it again. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. He didn't mind doing a job as long as he was going to get his heat back. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, the, 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 uh, the, the thought that there's more money in the chase, you know, is, is always out there. As long as the chase is short, about seven days. Yeah. Right. 14 max. <laughs> oh my God, Steve, it's been a pleasure to have you here this week, man. I've had so much fun. I feel like we could do this for 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think we went down a lot of interesting rabbit holes and hopefully we didn't go too far down that ho hopefully it was entertaining and interesting to people. Yeah. We kind of set the stage for people that never really followed Memphis from the time period. We kind of talked about it being its own entity. We talked about some of the things going on at the end of the year, some of the talent leaving and some of the talent starting to get a push playboy Frazier. How about that? Can't wait for that. Uh, Eddie Gilbert, you know, going to be feuding with Jerry Lawler, his first, would you call this Eddie Gilbert's first real big push here getting to feud with the King? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is where he stepped out of his dad's shadow. He was, he was much better as a heel than as a baby face. And this, that segment in that first week that this is your life segment was just an absolutely fantastic segment. And, you know, he, he really pulled that off like a guy who'd been doing that for years. That's what I was going to say. He was ready. There was no stutter in that, you know, and you're on live TV and, you know, there was no effects, but Eddie had been around for quite a while. Yes. Working on those uh, Henry Rogers type cards, but he also went up to the WWF had that big storyline where the mass superstar like injured his neck or whatever. And, and Bob Backlund was, you know, kind of his mentor and he teamed with Kurt Hennig way back in the WWF around whatever, 83 or whatever that was. So Eddie Gilbert's been around the block. He wouldn't get a lot of promo time, but man, now that he does, he delivers. Yeah. He, he, he had, he, he had been developed for this moment and he was ready for it. And he just knocked it out of the park. I think yeah. you talk about sink or swim, Eddie, you know, Eddie swam. That's for sure. You know, Rude and Bundy had been top heels for, for a long time in 85. I mean, they needed somebody else in that slot. So it, it worked out best for everybody. So safe to say it's probably their time to go. Bundy, to me, he's just not a long-term guy you keep around. But Rude, I could have seen them keep trying to find something for him to do for a little longer. But I'm nitpicking when I say that. Obviously, he goes on to do 
bigger things. He'll become tag team champions down in Crockett. And then obviously his big run up in the WWF as well. So Rick Rude, he'll, he'll do okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see, you know, Bundy is more of like a special attraction, like an Andre or the road warriors or something of that nature. Yeah, I agree. So I'm really surprised he stayed in the territory as long as he did. So Jarrett must've been making it worth as well financially to do that. But yeah, I mean, Rude, you know, had a hall of fame career and this is where his hall of fame career really started. This is where he learned how to be a heel and you know, who, who better to learn that from than Jerry Lawler. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And you know, I think about Bundy too, finishing up here at the end of the year in 84, he goes on a a Japanese tour after this and then he's boom, shows up on WWF TV. Uh, in time for re- the first WrestleMania. Remember, that's coming in just three months' time. March 31st, 1985 is WrestleMania 1. And Bundy's part of that. You know, he's already he does the TV tapings three weeks prior, I do believe. So Bundy starts probably by the get- beginning of March. He does the, uh, the New Japan Tour right before that, wearing that uh, Dracula cape and sunglasses. Don't know what that was about, but it is what it is. And... <laughs> It's uh yeah. so uh, maybe maybe the deal was already worked out when he left Memphis that he was gonna you know do that Japan tour obviously that was already worked out and then maybe he'd already talked to McMahon I don't know yeah and he was a natural for that environment you know oh, yeah. his his size his look it was you know perfect for that time and place so that's that's where he needed to be yeah it worked out well for him I'm sure he you know got a decent payday there at WrestleMania too I don't know so much about three with the midgets but. It, visually, he just looked like a guy that would be on Vince McMahon's oh, roster. Absolutely, it made sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, in the land of he, big he, guys, he was still a big guy, even even in the New York. Exactly, he just he had that stature to, to fill up the ring and and work big arenas and work his style, and and it was perfect. There's no way he could have gotten over anywhere else as well as he could have gotten over there. Well, guys, like I said, we could go on forever, but I won't do that to you, Steve. I won't make you sit here and spend your entire day talking to me. Although I do appreciate you, you know, spending uh, the last 90 minutes or so with me. Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's it's, it's uh, one of the things I love doing is talking Memphis wrestling. So we set the stage. We didn't have a lot of feuds and things to discuss going into the new year because, again, that reset button. So I thought it would just be cool to kind of break down a lot of the different things behind the scenes, what was going on, maybe Lawler's. Uh, issues with a few people and you know why the fabulous ones are where they are here in 85 and just you know all these great things and obviously you had a lot of input in this too steve because you were sending me ideas and i'm like jotting them down yeah 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 you know maybe when you go back and listen to this you'll be like wait a minute i came up with like 80 percent of that so you can just refer to me as jerry lawler i'll just take the take the credit but um, no but you you are a tremendous co-host man you are welcome back anytime Hey, you're a great ring general, and I'll be back anytime you want me. Oh, that's excellent, because we've got a long way to go heading through Memphis 1985. Uh, Steve Crawford, once again, everyone, pleasure, pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks. Anytime. Wow. What a tremendous first episode as we set the stage for 1985 in the CWA, the Memphis Territory. Some great reminiscing of decades of research that I've done as well. I learned a couple of new things as well here, talking to Steve. So I want to thank Steve Crawford one more time. And we'll be back soon with more Memphis 85, more Georgia 81 with Jamie Ward, UWF 86 with Roman Gomez. And of course, I am your host, Ray Russell. You can follow me on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And we'll be back soon with more regional wrestling, where we talk the territories. Talk the territories.